take you back to 1952. During that year, just prior to Christmas, a journalist by the name of Edward R. Morrow contacted Stanley Marcus, and he asked if he would uh, have anything in his catalog, a Christmas catalog. Marcus was a retailer. He said, are you offering anything unusual that might interest my radio listeners? On the spot, Marcus came up with something. A live Angus bull, <laughs> accompanied with a sterling silver barbecue cart. Ever since, the Neiman Marcus catalog has offered the unusual and the unthinkable sometimes, certainly the unaffordable for most people, truly unique gifts in their catalog. This year, by the way, they're offering a one-of-a-kind electric Cadillac for $975,000. I doubt very seriously if any of you had that on your Christmas list. Uh, they also are offering a, an opportunity to be an animated character in a Disney movie for $510,000. And finally, a treasure hunting excursion on a luxury, a luxury yacht for $485,000. Truly, those uh, are, as they describe them, fantasy gifts for, I think we would all agree, they are fantasy as far as we're concerned, right? But the, the Neiman Marcus catalog says something about our culture. In fact, a number of years ago, the catalog itself was so prized that people were stealing it out of other people's mailboxes if they didn't have one. There was a postmaster in Chicago that actually made a request to Neiman Marcus that they please put their catalogs in brown paper wrappers so nobody would see them. And, be tempted to steal them out of somebody else's mailbox. Well, that's not our anticipation or thought or probably not even our fantasy for Christmas. But it does say to us, here's what you're up against in this culture. The catalog itself and all that it offers highlights the desire for wealth and luxury that permeates our society. And that in turn lends itself to the idea that money and material wealth are what we actually need to be happy. And that in turn produces discontentment. And even for us as believers, because this is so much a part of our culture and so much up front before our eyes all the time in every way, it can, it can affect us. Sometimes we grow a little discontent with our situation. We're in good company, by the way, if that happens. 
King David wrote this in Psalm 73. He said, Surely God is good to Israel, to those of a pure heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. <laughs> yeah, that's our temptation too. But what is contentment? That's our topic this morning. I would say that the best definition I could give is this. Contentment is trusting God with all your circumstances, whatever they may be, how difficult they may be, whatever they are. Charles D. Kelly gave this definition. He said, contentment is the God-given ability to be satisfied with the loving provision of God in any and every circumstance. Well, that's easier said than done, right? Let's be honest about it. Yet, if we can learn to be content, if we can accomplish that, there is certainly great joy for us to be had in every situation and peace in every circumstance that we face in life. Now, contentment is a broader issue than our relationship with material things. It goes much deeper than that. It is literally the ability to trust God with your life on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, it's reflected, it's reflected very prominently in our relationship to wealth, money, possessions. And that's what Paul deals with here in our text this morning. But he goes much deeper than you or I may typically think when we read this. Let's imagine an eye chart. You go to the doctor, you go to the eye doctor, and they let's sit you down and they want you to read this chart. Now, if you're like me, he wants me to take out my contact, the one that I wear, before I look at the chart. And, uh, you know, I do pretty good on the first line, the second line, the third line, I get a little fuzzy. Can you read the bottom line? No. And so, they measure your ability to see with perspective, to understand what it is, to be able to read the letters. That's what contentment is based on. Our ability to see the world we live in for what it is. Our ability to have God's perspective on life, and in particular upon life as it is apart from Him. On the one hand, and the blessings of what life is when we do focus on Him. So my question to you this morning is this, in terms of your contentment, are you able to read that bottom line? We've got it clearly in focus. Because contentment depends on the right perspective. How you look at life, how you look at your life, how you perceive your own circumstances, that's going to determine whether or not you are content. Now, <clears throat> when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 6, I want to begin at the latter part of verse 5. 
because the latter part of verse 5, although it's not really what I'm dealing with, kind of gives us the context. Because Paul is talking to Timothy, he's writing to Timothy, the young pastor, at least younger than him, I don't know how really young he was, but he was much younger than Paul. And Paul is trying to give him perspective on a lot of things. And one of the things he mentions just prior to coming to verse 6 in the previous verse are those who think a certain way. They perceive something this way. And he says this in the latter part of verse 5, who, these people he's speaking of, who suppose that godliness is a means of great gain. Now he uses the word godliness here. So we have to understand what that word means. It's a word that was used in the Greek culture to just ref refer to anybody's reverence of God or their outward behavior as it reflected their reverence for God. So it kind of is a, it's kind of the whole ball of wax, so to speak, of our Christian life, our Christian behavior, our relationship with the Lord. And he says, but some people, they take true godliness and they make it religion. And religion's all about do this, do that, hope for this, hope for that. And there's not much hope in religion. But godliness, on the other hand, that's a, that's a reverence for the true God of the universe, the creator of it all, the one who sent his son to die for us and give us eternal life through faith in him. And that, that should shape our thinking. It should shape our perspective of life. It should shape who we are. It should determine our outward choices, actions, all of that. Well, some people, says Paul, some suppose that it's just like a religion and they can just step into it and they can, you know, be an act godly. They can put on a good show as a means of trying to become rich. We don't have to. I could give you a, a dozen illustrations and I don't need to do that. But even down to this day, there are those that have fallen into this trap and I, I don't even know if they're believers or not, but certainly they're behaving in this way that, that Paul describes here as people who just, just suppose they know what godliness is, but they don't have any real idea what it is. So what is that perspective that is different from those who suppose godliness to be a means of financial gain or ability to gain wealth? Here it is in verse 6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain. And by the way, the Greek word for great there is the word mega. You know, you see these lottery things, a mega millions or whatever. It's a lot, okay? So he's saying real godliness is gain. It's far, far surpasses anything this world can offer. It's great gain. It's mega gain. On the other hand, wealth, worldly wealth is of limited value. It has some function for a while, and that's it. So, godliness itself, true godliness is great gain. But notice what he says. <clears throat> but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Now, that New American Standard translation there is often translated simply with the word with in other translations. That, that godliness, true godliness is actually great gain with contentment. And 
this week as I was looking at this verse and thinking about it and, and studying for the message this morning, I kept coming back to the word with. What does he mean? Godliness with contentment. It's got to be in the grammar. So uh, what does the preposition mean? Well, it means something that is part of a whole. Now, I know the New American Standard translates it as something that accompanies in the time frame, and, that, and then I'm sure, suppose it can, that, that's part of it. But the basic level of understanding here is that godliness with contentment is great gain. He doesn't say contentment is great gain. He says godliness is great gain with contentment. Contentment is a part of what godliness is. Contentment is a part of being like Jesus Christ. Contentment is a part of Christ's likeness. It's part of it. There is nowhere that I can really isolate in Scripture where we are told be content. Now, Hebrews 13, 5, sort of almost says, at least in the English translation, but it's not a, it's not a, a command at all in the, in the verb. It's not an imperative. Uh, John the Baptist told the Roman soldiers back in, uh, uh, I think it's in uh, Matthew or Luke in the early chapters, he was talking to them and they came to hear him preach and he's told them to do several things. And one of the things he told them to do was to what? Be content with your wages. Well, that's the best in the, uh, the only one I can come up with. It's a direct command. But this is John the Baptist speaking to people before the resurrection of Christ, before the coming of the Spirit, and before this dispensation began. For us, as Paul is talking about it here and addressing Timothy, he says, Godliness, which includes contentment, is a great gain. Now, having said that, he goes on to verse 7 and he gives the contrast. In verse 7 he says, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Well, that's true. So, here is the world's idea of what is gain, what is important, what is profit. Having worldly things, possessing things, having a lot of money, having a lot of resources, being rich. But the time frame on that, even if you were to become extremely rich, is very short. Life itself is very short. Often in the scripture, it's described as being a vapor that appears for a while and then it's gone. That's how short our life is as far as its existence in this world. Now, we will live on forever and eternally, obviously, and that's what we need to be thinking about because that's where we're all headed to know the Lord Jesus Christ. The, f the people that think that godliness is a means of great gain, they are seeing wealth as being necessary for anything that's valuable, and their, their conclusion uh, is misleading and it's false. Why? Because it won't last. You go to the Old Testament, and you read there about Job. Job lost everything. He had everything. He was probably one of the richest men in the world in his day. He lost it all. 
What did Job say? <laughs> Job said this in Job 1, 20 and 22. He said, Naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, that's true contentment. Just simply trusting God for whatever God allows, whatever God makes possible, whatever God blesses you with, whatever he doesn't. Paul said it this way in Philippians 4.11. He said, not that I speak from want. That means from desire to have more. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Now look, we should be content. But Paul doesn't say be content. He said, I've learned to be content. The implication is you need to learn to be content. It's something that can be learned. <laughs> well, how do we go about that? Paul uses the past tense. He says, I have learned to be content. So Paul is at a position and a point in his life where he has already learned this. How did he learn it? I suggest to you he learned to be content from not being content. He learned to be content with little when he had, because there was a time in his life when he was, had little. He learned to be content when he suffered because there was plenty of times when he suffered and he had to look to God every time. He had to look to God to meet his needs and such. And so he developed the right perspective on gain, on godliness, and the fact that it is great gain. He developed the right perspective on that. It controlled how he thought about his life and his circumstances, and thus he learned to be content. So, contentment depends on the right perspective. Now, so far we've noticed in verses 5 all the way down through verse 7 that the right perspective on wealth is that it's, it's limited to this world. That's the right perspective there, the right perspective on wealth. He goes on in the next verse, verse 8, and he moves to the second point, the second perspective, and that is this. There's a right perspective we need to have in terms of need, in terms of need. Because most of us, we're more familiar with need than we are wealth. This will be of a much greater interest to us, I suspect. So what is the right perspective on need? The right perspective is simply this. Our needs will be supplied. Our needs are going to be supplied. Now, in verse 8, we read this. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. You see, God's Word teaches us that there are only two basic needs in life. Just two. Food and covering. Now, covering includes clothing and shelter. That's why it's translated covering here in the New American Standard. A lot of the older translations uses the term raiment. Food and covering. That's it. That's all we have to have to sustain us. Food to eat. It includes water, of course, or something to drink. Go along with that. Uh, food to eat and protection from the elements. And isn't that what Jesus taught us when he taught the Lord's Prayer? You remember the line in the Lord's Prayer? And give us this day our daily food. 
Doesn't say anything about anything beyond that, does he? He doesn't mention coverings in particular there in the Lord's Prayer, but he does in Matthew chapter 6. You might want to jot this reference down, Matthew 6, 25 to 34, because he begins talking about worry. And that's the topic. And he goes on to say, and this is Jesus' teaching on, in, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. He goes on to say that God feeds the birds. The birds don't go hungry. God supplies their food. And who's, who is clothed like the lilies of the field? Like the beautiful blue bonnets we see here. You know, only God can do something like that. If God can feed the birds, and if God can clothe the very flowers in the field, don't you think he can do the same for you? That's what Jesus is saying. So then what does he say when he comes down to the end of that whole section in Matthew 6.33? And this is the key verse, Matthew 6.33. He says, seek first the kingdom of God, and all of these things shall be added to you. What things? The food like the birds need and the clothing like the flowers require. And ours will be beautiful and ours will be plenty. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. God will take care of it. Our needs will be supplied. Now let's go back to our verse. Verse 8, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Read it again. Look at it again. With these we shall be content. Because we tend to read it, with these we should be content. That's not what it says. It says, with these we shall be content. Why does he say that? Go back to the previous verse when he said, godliness with contentment. We shall be content when we have the right perspective on God's goodness and God's promises and the fact that God's going to supply all of our needs. And that, my friend, is a relationship with God himself, which speaks of the word godliness. It's part of our Christ-likeness. It's part of what the Spirit of God is doing in us. It's part of our maturity. It's part of our growth process that brings us closer and closer to being like Christ. When we focus on godliness, contentment's a given. When we understand what our needs are and that God will supply those needs, then we will be content. Why shouldn't we be? We're never going to lack. Philippians 4.19, Paul wrote, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Hudson Taylor was an Englishman who went to China as a missionary and eventually established the China Inland Mission, which was a predominant Chinese mission back before the days of communism. And uh, he's a well-known historical figure and a great missionary hero. But before he actually went to China, he was headed there. He felt God was calling him there. And so he decided he was going to volunteer to help a medical doctor minister to people that lived in a very impoverished region. And so he made that journey there. And as part of his duties there, one night late, he was called to go to the home of a woman who was sick and her children were starving. They just did, literally had nothing. 
And uh, he was sent there to pray with her and encourage her during this time of trial. He gets there and he finds out the extent of their poverty and the extent of their need. And he starts to pray for the woman. And he, he literally said, I choked on my own words. Because in my pocket was my last silver coin. And I knew that that silver coin was an answer to the prayer I was about to pray. For it would supply the food necessary for this woman and her children. But he was reluctant to trust God because it was his last dime, so to speak. But he pulled out the coin, he gave it to the lady, he prayed with the lady, and he went home to one bowl of porridge, which was, he said, was all that was between him and having nothing. But the next morning, the very next morning, an anonymous package arrived. And inside he found a gold sovereign worth 10 times more than the silver coin. He never knew who sent it. It just showed up. But he learned there from that experience and understood his godliness, his doing the right thing, led to God's supply and it produced the ability in him to learn to be content. You know, one of the requirements of a China inland missionary, the mission headed by Hudson Taylor for many years, one of the requirements of missionaries was not to ever tell anybody they had need, not to ever request any help or support. Just trust God to supply it, and God did in so many miraculous ways. I like what Henry Ward Beecher said many, many years ago. He lived back in the 1800s. He was a Congregationalist pastor. He said this, he is rich or poor according to what he is, not according to what he has. Isn't that what Hudson Taylor's story just told us? Isn't that what it just illustrated? Isn't that what you've learned during those times maybe in your life when you had nothing much? Didn't have maybe what you thought you needed to pay a bill or to get along for another day or two, and yet God supplied. That's how we learn contentment. And that contentment comes from having the right perspective on a God who meets our needs. So, going back to our main point, contentment depends on the right perspective. So far, we've learned it depends on our perspective of wealth. It's short-lived. It depends on our perspective of need. God will supply. But there's one more that we need to add to the list in terms of contentment. And we find this as we move on to verse 9 and 10. The last perspective we need is the right perspective on greed. Greed. And that perspective is this. Greed is destructive. See, contentment, trusting in God in every situation, that edifies, that builds you up, that strengthens you. That makes you more like Jesus Christ. That brings you peace and joy and, and uh, everything that you can imagine. But greed, the very thing that people think they have to have 
in life everything they can lay their hands on uh, because that's what they depend on, that is self-destructive. Look at verse 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and, mold, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Wow. Verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul had a way of saying things, you know, in a, <laughs> in a powerful way that didn't mince words, didn't he? Greed results in a sequence of calamities. That's what he's saying. Verse 9, temptation. Temptation then leads to entrapment, the snare. And then it produces long-term lust, which then plunge men into ruin and destruction. A sequence of calamities. I like what Carl C. Wood said. He said this. He said, if we work our fingers to the bone, pinch and save every penny for a rainy day, who knows? In no time at all, we may be the richest person in the cemetery. He's right. And when you get to the cemetery part, you don't take any of it with you, remember? Nothing came into the world, nothing goes out. That doesn't uh, speak of a very good investment, does it? You see, <clears throat> greed that leads to a sequence of calamities, it kind of has two aspects or two things we can look at to gauge whether or not you are desiring more than you should, and that's your focus. One of those is excessive debt. Now, I'm not talking about everybody in every situation. Sometimes people get pushed into debt, medical bills or whatever, but people that just run up incredible credit card debt, no end to it, borrow, borrow, borrow. That might be a, a tip-off. You're struggling with desire, greed. The other, the other thing that might be a part of this is excessive work. Work all the time. Work excessively. Work at the expense of home and family. Work at the expense of the Lord, serving Him. It's not worth it. It's not going to pay off. The best you can hope for is to be the most wealthy person in the cemetery. Uh, now, if you handle money right, and God blesses you, and by the way, God has blessed a lot of people, going clear back to the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the way forward. God, uh, Job, we mentioned him. God has blessed a lot of people that had great faith with great resources. That doesn't produce contentment. Job, Job had that before he had the resources. He had contentment when the resources were gone. How we manage in these resources, God does make available to us. And here in America, we all are rich compared to the world around us. Uh, that, that responsibility of stewardship can produce eternal reward if we use it for God's glory. And there are many ways you can do that. But just hoarding it, just having it, Thinking it'll bring you peace and joy, that's a different story. I, I remember years ago, I went to seminary in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Temple Baptist Theological Seminary. 
several of my professors were educated right up the road here at Dallas Seminary. But this seminary was uh, connected to what was an independent Baptist church at the time. Very large, we call it a mega church. They had a seminary. And, uh, but the pastor of the church who was in charge of the school and the church, his name was Dr. Lee Robertson. And uh, I still remember some of the stories he told when he would preach in chapel. And one story had to do with an uncle. And <clears throat> this goes back to the days of the Depression. Nobody had anything, basically. He told the story about going with his father to visit his uncle. And he was visiting his uncle in a very meager house, you know, and so forth. And his uncle takes him down into the basement. He walks into the basement and looks around. And his uncle literally had silver coins just stacked up. Stacked, stacks, stacks, stacks of them. Gold coins. All kinds of just hoarding these things. And that, that was pretty despicable concerning the fact that family and friends maybe could have used some help. And I remember Dr. Robertson's characterization of that whole story. And he looked at us and he said, in terms of his uncle, he was a miser. He was. <laughs> That's what he was. And he become, probably became the richest man in the cemetery, too. Right shortly after that, who knows how long, but it would have been a short while. Greed is of no value. It's destructive. So we've noticed three things about contentment. Contentment depends on the right perspective, the right perspective on wealth, the right perspective on need, and the right perspective on greed. But remember, I said this, and I've emphasized it a couple of times, contentment, though we see it in terms of its relationship to what we have or do not have, contentment is not just about possessions. It's not just about wealth or money. It is, an, it is a perspective, it is an attitude of heart that says, I trust God no matter what. Look, contentment is not about complacency. Contentment is not being complacent. It doesn't mean you shouldn't have goals. It doesn't mean you shouldn't work hard. It doesn't mean you shouldn't plan, invest well. Not at all. Contentment is not complacency. <clears throat> Contentment is not a lot of things. But what it is, is simply a trust in your Heavenly Father. It is a faith relationship with God rather than with what he created. It's a relationship with God rather than what he has blessed us with even. Godliness, all that we are in our Christ-likeness, all that we should be in our respect and love for God, all that we are as we grow and mature and become Christ-like, our godliness is the focus. Contentment is the result of that focus. That's why the scripture doesn't say, be content. I mean, you could just, I could say I could pull my hair out if I had any. I could pull my hair out and still not be content. You know, I, I don't, you, you can't make yourself be content by force of your will. But if you focus on God, you focus on Jesus Christ, contentment comes. 
we shall be content, as Paul said to Timothy. Godliness, along with the contentment that comes with it, will mean that we shall be content if our focus is in the right place. When you watch a Kentucky Derby or any horse race, <clears throat> the racehorses will have blinders on. It's not so much the old, you know, old-fashioned stick-out-from-their-head blinders. They kind of build them into that little hood they put on the horse's face. See, horses have an incredible field of vision. Uh, it's estimated that they have a 350-degree field of vision, and there's only 360 available, right? <laughs> so, uh, and and that, that means that horses depend on their division or their vision for protection. Be able to see, see things that would be a threat and run. God, God created them that way. But for a racehorse, all that peripheral vision is nothing but distraction to their focus on what they've got to do moving forward. So they blind out as much of that as they can. Not nearly all of it, but a good portion of it. This is what we have to do in our spiritual life. We have literally got to put on spiritual blinders to keep our heart and mind in the right place, to keep our trust relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ before us as our goal, as our purpose, as our passion every day, and when we do that, all these things that other people see are not in focus. The Lehman Marcus catalog is just a curiosity, not, a, not an obsession. Money is the blessing of God to be used for his glory, not something just for us. God has given us a set of blinders. And I don't know how to say it any other way than it. It's, it's his word. We get perspective from his word. Everything we've just referred to here, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and other places and other cross-references we've made, it's, it's the blinders we put on. We see life through the word because it's his word. That gives us a different thought process. It produces contentment as a result of that effort to be in sync with our Savior. It gives us contentment as a result of being on the same page as our Lord. It gives us contentment as a result, contentment as a result of, of growing in faith and growing in the Lord and being like Him. Contentment is the benefit we gain. It's not something we produce in and of ourselves otherwise. So here's what I would say to you. This is, this is the conclusion to everything. The application is simply this. Focus on Jesus and his word. Now, if you already know him as your savior, it's just a matter of putting him first. Seeking ye first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything else will come along. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, or you're not sure where you stand, 
It's a faith relationship. It's not religion. It's not doing this, doing that. Now, there's a lot of good things we should do once we know Him, but salvation is about faith in a person. It's about a relationship with the Savior, the God who took on human flesh this Christmas season. We celebrate that. He became a man through the virgin birth. He became both God and man, not half and half. He's completely and utterly still God. He is also man. He is then able to be our Savior because He could be our substitute. He took our punishment. And He says if we believe in Him, if we put our trust in Him, if we, if we come to Him in faith and accept who He is and turn our life over to Him by faith, we have a relationship that will produce everything else we need. But if you pursue everything else you think you need at the expense of knowing God, you'll never be satisfied. You'll never be fulfilled. You say, well, where do, where do I stand then? I'm a, say, I'm a Christian. I try to do what's right. I try to read my Bible. I try to be faithful and so on. I understand that. You're on the right track. As Orville Redenbacher said, I wouldn't change a thing, right? Other than... We can get a little bit more serious about it. And quit treating our relationship with Jesus Christ as if it were a religion when it's not. And we can all say, yeah, that puts us back in the category where David said, as for me, my steps had almost slipped. By the way, later in that psalm, he says, until I came to the house of God, when he got God's perspective, all that changed. That's what we need.